So this morning we are opening up 2 Timothy, and before we do, I want to get to just kind of a few points of introduction of this letter. You'll notice that as, as we get into 2 Timothy, having concluded our study in 1 Timothy, that it is a decidedly different type of letter. It just, it, it, it's, it's look and feel is different if you were to sit down one afternoon and you start in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1 and, and you read through the end of it and then you get to the end of that and you say, well, 2 Timothy follows it and I don't have anything to do yet. There's something good on TV and you're to pick up 2 Timothy and you just carry on and, and keep reading. If you're reading with any type of care and precision, you're going to notice a distinct change in tone. You're going to notice a distinct change in, in just kind of the manner of Paul's writing in those two books, in those two letters. Now, part of that is because there's some time that separates these two writings. First Timothy's written probably around AD 64 or so, and Second Timothy is written in about AD 67. Now, you remember when First Timothy opened up, Paul is, is busy, he's traveling around, he's dropped off Timothy there in Ephesus to straighten some things out, to work on some things there for the church in Ephesus, and, and, and Timothy's just got a booger bear to work with. He's got a lot of problems to sort through. And he is set up for him, Paul has set up for him certain markers. You know, you want to have deacons, this is what you want them to be like. You want to have elders, this is what you want them to be like. You want to have people engage in worship in this way, they have to see God in that way. And so it's, he's dealing in terms of orthodoxy, he's dealing in terms of, of, of church polity and governance and kind of how it's set up and how it's structured. And so he's moving in, in really kind of a systematic fashion. Now, it's not an impersonal letter by any stretch of the imagination. First Timothy wasn't a form letter where Paul just interchanges names and dates. He's like, dear, uh, what, was, what was, okay, second name on the list, Timothy. You know, it, it, it was a letter addressed to Ephesus, the church there. It was, had personal things about Timothy, about the way that he led, about some things he needed to do to affect change in the church in Ephesus. But as we come into 2 Timothy... What you're going to pick up on is that Paul's situation has radically changed. He is very near the end of his ministry. He is about to be executed, and he is writing, church history tells us, and tradition tells us, that he is writing from the famed Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, if you ever get a chance to go to Rome, you, it, is, it is worth your time, whether or not this is actually the historical place where Paul was, was kept, I don't know, I wasn't there. I, you know, I thought about trying to be there, but that was way before I was born. And so, but if you get a chance to go to Mamertine Prison, they have cut steps where you can step down into it now. But in the time Paul would have been kept there, there was nothing but a hole in the ceiling. It, it was a hole in the ceiling, and it was, it was rock chiseled out below, and so they would get the prisoner, and they would lower them down in there, and it was dark, and it was dank, and it was just not... A pleasant place. You'll remember that when we went through Philippians together, we said Paul was under house arrest, and so he was chained to a guard. And so there was maybe, you know, two, two and a half feet separating him and some large Roman who was there to enforce Paul's proper behavior. You remember that? St. Philippi. This isn't, this isn't Paul writing and saying, you know, it's not so bad. I've got, I've got some freedom. I've, you know, I'm, I'm chained to my new Roman buddy. This is Paul writing from the belly of a really miserable prison. Not a whole lot of freedom. There's not a whole lot of sunlight. 
it is an oppressive place to be. And he is waiting out his days until he will be executed. And so that is the mindset we come into. And so when he offers to Timothy proclamations of joy, and when he discusses, when he discusses suffering, we recognize that he is maintaining joy in the midst of tremendous suffering. We recognize that he is maintaining his close fellowship and walk with Jesus as not being steered off course even in the midst of tremendous persecution. In fact, he is about to be executed. And so let's, let's look at these first few verses in 2 Timothy today. Paul, he opens it up, and there's this familiar address. And he, sa- he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is really, really similar to 1 Timothy. I mean, it is, it is almost the exact same address that he began 1 Timothy with, with some slight nuanced changes. But let's, it's been a while since we went through 1 Timothy, so let's walk through this together. We recognize that Paul makes use of his title of apostle. Apostle is somebody that was witness to the risen Lord. They received instruction from Jesus, and Paul avails himself of that as he does in most of his letters. But he does so in a different way. Now, if you were to flip over to 1 Timothy and look at it, Paul says, Paul, an apostle by the command of Jesus. Here Paul writes and he says, it is by the will of Christ Jesus. It is by the will. It is by the will of God in this letter that, that he is an apostle. Now think about that. Paul sits in the midst of a miserable situation. He sits in the midst of, of, of watching his timeline come to a quick conclusion. But he does so with a steady recognition that it is God's will for his life that he is in the place where he is supposed to be. He's, he's not bothered. He's not thinking over his life and thinking, man, maybe I made the wrong choice. I, I should not have left Timothy alone in Ephesus. Instead, I should have chosen to stay there with him and, and I really probably shouldn't have pushed for that meeting with Nero. Maybe that was where I went wrong. But he recognizes instead that God has Paul in exactly the place that he needs to be at the time that he needs to be there. Man, what a great comfort that is to us in our lives that even as we go through the midst of trial and difficulty, that, and, and, and none of us are in a Roman prison awaiting execution. If you have a relative that is, talk to me. That's interesting. I'd like to find out how that worked. But none of us are in that situation, but we recognize that Paul, in the midst of that, doesn't look at it. He doesn't doesn't shout at God. He doesn't throw accusations back at God, but he recognizes that that is exactly what God had for him. That is exactly what God had for him. And he says that it is according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul sees his reason for this suffering directly in line with the proclamation of the gospel. The promise that is in the life of Jesus Christ is is the gospel. Paul sees the, the manner of the way that he is having to live out the rest of his life moving 
in line with the gospel? Can we say that of our own lives, that we recognize those things that we are engaged in, those things that we are doing, are they in line with the promise that is in the life of Christ Jesus? Man, when you look at, at those things that you decided would, would be your, your top ten, or maybe you're like me and you've got like one thing you're trying to accomplish in 2014 because last year's list of ten was just an embarrassment. Let's not talk about it. Let's move on. And so you recognize that, that looking at that list of things that, that are your resolutions, those things that you want to do in this next year, how much of a role does the gospel play in identifying those things? How much of a role did the gospel play in, in you formulating and coming to those things to which you would seek to glorify God in this next year? Because, friends, that is what our lives are for. Man, they're for His glory. They are for His renown. We should use those things in our life to bring God glory, to bring Him honor. And Paul is glorifying God even in the midst of tremendous suffering. You know, he is writing to Timothy, and he refers to Timothy as his beloved child. And he extends to him grace, mercy, and peace, and those from God. See, Paul looks at Timothy, and, and, and this is the personal tone of 2 Timothy. He looks at Timothy, and he sees a guy that has traveled around with him on missionary journeys. He sees a guy that he has picked up through his missionary journeys, which is recorded in Acts 16, and he sees in him somebody that he has poured his life into. He sees in him somebody that he has, he has discipled. He sees in him somebody he has watched succeed and fail. Man, and this is a reminder to all of us, and we'll see this over and over again in 2 Timothy, that we need to be looking for people that we can pour our lives into. There are people that, that, that we can come alongside, we can encourage them, we can build them up in the faith, and that they will likely live past us. Our desire is to see Christianity continue much past us and in, in, in that and the lives of those that we pour our lives into. And Paul was no stranger to that. Let's look at verse 3. Paul writes, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Now, Paul is doing something interesting here. Paul is going to make a, a parallel, and he begins it here, to his line of faith. Paul is making a, a parallel, and he begins with it with his line of faith. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. Now, this word serve, interestingly enough, and the ESV renders it serve, but other translations choose to render this word as worship. And in that, we see the, the fine line between service and worship. And if you're not engaged in, in some form of service, whether through this church or through a different organization, if you're not serving God, then the question resounds, how are you worshiping Him? Because if the way that you're worshiping God is, is nothing more than you know, a, a once-a-year activity or an every-Sunday activity or a Sunday and Wednesday activity, Paul is pairing worship and service together. Man, our service is, is a way that we very much worship God. Whether it be in teaching Sunday school, whether it be helping Philip out with benevolence, whether it be helping somebody out with, with, with helping Joe out with CR, whether it be working in the nursery, 
whether it be visiting people that are shut in and can't get out, how are you serving God? Because you worship Him through these acts of service. You're not earning greater favor with God, but you are glorifying Him and worshiping Him through service. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. And he connects it to his ancestors. You'll recognize that Paul is a Jew, right? You remember we went through Philippians and Paul traced out all the high marks of his lineage, all the high marks of his pedigree. And Paul said, look, uh, you've got Jews and then you've got my people. I am a Jew's Jew. Paul said, look, I am a Pharisee's Pharisee. I am so much more zealous for the things of the law than anybody else. And he says, look, all of my line, all of my ancestors, they engaged in the worship of God. He said, I continue to do that. And I do so with a clear conscience. What an amazing thing, Paul, that as he sat and evaluated his life. Paul, that as he sat and he thought back over those times he was shipwrecked, those times he was stoned, those times he went without food, those times when he was lost at sea, those times when he was beat, those times when he was in prison, those times when he was beaten and left for dead. Throughout all of it, Paul said, I engage in service, and I do so with a clear conscience. And we see the, the fondness that Paul has for Timothy. He says, look, I engage in all this stuff as I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. Every time Paul thinks about Timothy, it returns thanks to God. Every time Paul comes into prayer, he, he remembers Timothy, the man that he labored with. He remembers Timothy, this one he refers to as his true son or his beloved son. And he does this every single time. Paul is setting up a, a, a drastically different letter than he did in 1 Timothy. Look at the personal tone in verse 4. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. You remember in, in Philippians, as we went through that, and Paul was writing to the church there in Philippi, and he says, look, I wish I could send you Timothy. And this is what Paul said of Timothy in Philippians. He says, of Timothy, I have no one like him. We are like sold. He could say that of Timothy, they are cut from the same cloth. Of Timothy, Paul depended upon, Paul trusted in, and Paul received encouragement from. There's a number of people that writing of Timothy, and, and, and really you see people tear down Timothy as you read through commentaries on him. and say, Timothy the timid, or Timothy the cowardly, or, I mean, Timothy just took too much encouragement. And that must mean that, that Paul saw inferiority in Timothy's life. Paul chose in Timothy somebody to suffer with, somebody to win battles with. Paul saw in Timothy somebody that he could entrust an entire church to. You'll remember that Ephesus was a mess. I don't know what all churches y'all have been members of, and, and maybe you've been at Ridgecrest your whole life, but the things that were taking place in the church in Ephesus I mean, I, just, I don't think many of us would stay there very long if those types of things were, were taking place in our church. And that's who Paul chose to leave there. Paul knew that Timothy was the man for the job, that he was humble enough 
to know that he couldn't accomplish it on his own, but he needed to rest in God's provision. And so Paul writes of him. And, and, and maybe t- Paul is recounting that time when he left him in Ephesus. And you can flip back over to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy and remember that. That time when they were parted, that Timothy shed tears over their parting. Now, for whatever reason, it, it has gotten to a point in, in our society where it is not necessarily popular for men to cry. I mean, if you watch uh, Old Yeller and, and the dog dies at the end and you don't cry, I would say you, you likely don't have a soul. I would say if you're watching where the red fern grows and you see those, I just, I'm, I'm going to stop. <laughs> Told myself I wasn't going to cry. I mean, there's nothing masculine about not crying. There's nothing inherently masculine about not having close, bonded friendships with other men. See, at some point in, in, our, in our development as a society and a culture, we have moved away from men. And, and, and ladies, we're just going to have a little aside for a second. So you guys can, you know, encourage your husbands to remember this later or any man sitting beside you. At some point, we moved away from, from a recognition that men need deep friendships. We moved away from a recognition that, that, that men desperately need to be bonded with other men. And to where that, you know, the, this idea that a man is an island and I'm really self-sufficient and everybody depends upon me, but I don't really have any close partnerships or affiliations. I've got guys I hunt with, guys I fish with, guys I play golf with. But, but we just don't get into sharing all of that personal stuff. Paul is not showing weakness in Timothy, but he's demonstrating a recognition that that he has been so bonded with Timothy in pursuit of the advance of the gospel that when they parted, that it led to tears being shed. And we desperately need that in our lives. We desperately need to be so bonded together with other men in the pursuit of making the gospel paramount in each other's lives that we would be moved to the point of shedding tears. Not just when we watch sappy movies or, or a really touching Hallmark commercial comes on, but when we think about suffering together, when we think about something happening to the other. So Paul writes Timothy. He says, Timothy, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. At the end of this letter, Paul is going to ask Timothy to come and see him. Paul has associated some sense of joy with the restoration of their relationship, with the renewing of their encounter together. And he longs to see Timothy. But look what he's reminded of. He doesn't write Timothy and just say, you know, I remember the times we had together traveling around, and you remember that funny story, and you remember when you almost caught yourself on fire? Man, that was hilarious. He writes him, and the singular thing that he's reminded of, in verse 5, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. How many people do you closely associate yourself with when you think of them? The thing that comes to your mind is their faith. How many people do you allow yourself to be impacted with, that you rub shoulders with? The thing that you think about 
is the strength of their faith. Now flip that. How many people, when they think of you, are reminded of your faith? How many people, if I were to walk up and say, you know, hey, could you, could you tell me about Laura? Could you tell me about Jason? Could you tell me about Joe? Could you tell me about Courtney? Could you tell me about Ed? And they would say, their faith. Their faith is absolutely the most distinguishable thing about their lives. Justin, I mean, his, his faith, it, it marks every decision he makes. Tim, his faith, it marks every decision he makes. Keith, his, de- his decisions are all marked by the rule of faith operating in his life. Because when Paul thought about Timothy, he's reminded of his faith. Paul writes and he says, it is your sincere or your true faith. And then Paul finishes this parallel that he began with his own ancestors. Look at the track of faith in Timothy's life. Paul says, look, Timothy, this faith is a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. You'll remember that in Acts, when Paul is, is going back over, and, and, or Luke is writing, and he's discussing Paul's travels through there, and, and when Paul and Timothy first encounter one another, that he speaks of, of a woman who is a Christian, and she's married to a Greek. She's married to somebody who doesn't profess faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we see happening in, Tim, in Timothy's life. What we see happening in Timothy's life is that these two tremendous women, first his grandmother, and she passed on her faith to her daughter. And then a mother passed on her faith to her son. Timothy has this tremendous legacy of faith in his family. He is the third generation of Christian in his family. Now, Timothy's father, we're told in Acts, is not a Christian. He is not reconciled with Jesus. He is moving in opposition to Jesus in the decisions that he makes and the way that he leads his family. He discounts Christianity. Now, we don't know if he's openly hostile to it or if he just tolerates the faith of his wife, but we recognize even in that environment, Timothy is saved. And some of us have spouses that are Christians, and and, and we raise our children in so much greater ease than those of us who have friends who are married to non-Christians. You have a a spouse that that is like-minded with you, and how much easier do you have it to pass on this heritage of faith? But i got to tell you, your kids aren't going to pick up on things that aren't important to you. If how your kids can tell that you're thinking about Jesus is because it's Sunday morning, then you're doing more damage to their future faith than you are strengthening them. And with what vibrancy, with what dedication, with what enthusiasm do your children, do your grandchildren see you exercise your faith? Timothy was raised in a house divided. He had his grandmother pouring into him, he had his mother pouring into him, and he came to know the Lord. And he was a man that Paul depended upon 
to a tremendous degree. He's a man that Paul depended upon, especially in his time of need. Can you say that of yourself? Now, maybe you don't have a family. Maybe you're, you're on your own, you're single. Whose life are you making a difference in? If I were to show up at your place of employment tomorrow, or if I were to see you out at a restaurant, and I were to sit down at the table, and I say, look, you be quiet. I want to ask these people here with you. What can you guys tell me about this person? What would they tell me about you? You're a bad tipper? They always have to pay for your meal? What would they tell me about you? What would they tell me about the conversations that you have with them? What difference is your faith making in your lives? How are you leaving a lasting legacy of faith? As did Eunice and as did Lois. And Paul comes to Timothy. And we see this beautiful movement of faith from grandmother to mother to son. This tremendous movement of faith. As Paul looks at Timothy's life, he looks at all the things that he's gone through with him. He looks at the things that he's endured there in Ephesus. And he makes this statement regarding Timothy's faith. And he says, and I'm persuaded that it resides in you as well. I'm persuaded that it dwells in you as well. And what an encouragement for Timothy. Not that he was so given to bouts of depression, but that, that Paul would offer this word of encouragement, that he would look at Timothy and the things that he's endured and the way that he lives his life, the way that faith has been handed down to him, and he would say, Timothy, I am persuaded that the same faith that was gloriously displayed in your grandmother, that the same faith that was tremendously worked out in your mother in, in a house divided, this same faith resides in you as well, and it, it, it governs the way that you live your life. It governs the way that you live your life. Let's close this out looking at 6 and 7. Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt trying to tie this back in to see you know, what exactly, what reason is Paul trying to tie this back together to? Is he trying to tie it back to the fact that Timothy cries a little bit? Is he trying to tie it back to the to the fact that he's got this, this surety of faith. But look at it this way. Paul has, has entered into this discussion about how his own ancestors handed down faith. Then he turns to Timothy and he entered into this discussion about how it went from his grandmother to his mother to him. Paul, I, I think, and I'm convinced that Paul is making a connection to the passing on of faith, he is making a connection to the successive generations and the strength of that faith, and that's why he writes to them. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God. Because Christianity should be passed on from generation, generation to generation, not as an inheritance that some lawyer dispenses, but as something that you instruct your children to grow in. Is something that you and your spouse, is something that you and your friends, is something that you and your peer group or, or 
employees and employers and coworkers come together is something that you mutually encourage one another to grow in. He writes to Timothy, he says, because it has been passed down, because you have such a strong faith, Timothy, I remind you to, flan, to fan and to flame the gift of God. To fan and to flame the gift of God. Paul is reminding Timothy that God has, has gifted him for the calling that he has placed before him. You'll remember that Ephesus is not an easy place to do ministry. And Paul has reminded Timothy that it is important for him to work to fan the flames of the gift of God. You know, anybody that spent any time lighting stuff on fire or, or, or making bonfires will recognize that in the days to come, the ashes still stay hot. And if you go out there, or as we did a couple of weeks ago, and I went out and I stoked back up those ashes again, and I put some stuff that was especially dry on them, that flame jumped back to life. It's not because I used diesel or, or gasoline, but it's because those embers were still so incredibly hot. But look, even in Timothy, recognize that at salvation, God equipped and gave to Timothy certain spiritual gifts, administration, evangelism. And then at salvation, God equips, God gives us certain gifts. And you know how we fan those into flame? It's not, by, it's not by reading books. It's not by engaging in, in, in theological study. It is by the exercise of those gifts. You think back to the time you were first saved and think, man, I longed to tell people of the transition, the transformation that had happened in my life. I had a zeal for evangelism. I just I don't feel that same sense anymore. We fan it into flame by exercising. How are you moving and exercising the gifts that God has entrusted to you in salvation? If you were to sit down this afternoon and write out those things that you were convinced that, that God gave you in salvation, those spiritual gifts that he entrusted to you, this would be a valuable exercise for any of us. And then go through and alongside those gifts, list ways that we are exercising, ways that we are using those gifts. See, we weren't gifted. We weren't given these things so that we might feel better about ourselves. We weren't given, we weren't uh, entrusted with these gifts so that we might feel more, more secure in our salvation. But we were given them. We were entrusted them. For their use in God's glory. When you think about the spiritual gifts that, that you have in your life, in what ways are you employing them? Paul reminds Timothy, he says, Remember when I didn't give these to you, but when these things were recognized by the brethren, and that's what he's referencing there, which he says, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Not that Paul came upon Timothy and he laid his hands upon him and Timothy received those gifts. But the church as a whole recognized the gifting of Timothy. And they had this setting where they would come in and as they would send those out, they would recognize those things that God had gifted them with and they would lay hands on them and pray for them. Look at this last word of encouragement that Paul gives Timothy in verse 7. 
He says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, the way that Paul writes this, we recognize that what he wants us to understand primarily is that God does not give a spirit of fear. And you can also translate this word as cowardice. God doesn't give us a spirit of cowardice. But, but some of us are, are so much more comfortable staying in, in this position of, of fear. It's, it's our ever-present friend. It's, it's something that we're much more comfortable with. I, I really don't want to step out because I, I'm just afraid. Recognize that, that God doesn't impart those things to you. God doesn't leave you in that state. But as he writes to Timothy, this last word of encouragement, he says, but he gives us power, love, and self-control. We recognize that in the exercise of power, we must be loving to those. We recognize in that as well that we must exercise self-control so not to abuse power that God enables us with. As we continue through this study of 2 Timothy together, Paul is really working to offer a last word of encouragement to Timothy. Not knowing that time when he might be executed, Paul is, is working diligently to encourage his friend, to encourage his true and beloved son. As we work through this book together, think about those ways that God is seeking to use this book to be an encouragement to you. Not to make you feel better about yourself, because that's not what he's trying to do for Timothy either. Paul's end is always the advancement of the gospel. He seeks to encourage, he seeks to build up Timothy so that the gospel might be more well received by those in Ephesus. He seeks to encourage, he seeks to build up Timothy so that the church might move and might function in the best way possible to glorify God. How is God going to move in, in your life through this book? To encourage you? In what ways is he going to move? Is he going to challenge you in your life? To strip out, to tear away those things that are an impediment to the advance of the gospel. And that's probably where we're going to struggle with the most in the coming months as we continue our study through 2 Timothy. Let me pray for us.